will join me in Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 20 this morning. In the Blue ESV Bible, you can follow along on page 605. The title of our sermon this morning is Feeding on Ashes. And the key words for our worshipers in training are idol, craftsmen, and cuts. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien was one of the most masterful writers of his time and certainly one of the greatest writers in all of human history. You don't have to love the fantasy genre of literature to appreciate Tolkien's work. I myself, I'm not really a fantasy kind of guy, but I have learned a lot from Tolkien's fantasy world. Uh, He called it Middle Earth and all of the characters throughout all of his work. I had the privilege of spending about four months last year studying most of Tolkien's works, and I was struck by the profound insight that he had with regard to human nature and biblical imagery as I was reading. And, And I was most amazed because Tolkien was writing fantasy fiction but he never came right out and said exactly what he was pointing to that was biblically true. He didn't have to. He implied it. He illustrated it. He alluded to it. But he never had to come right out and make it painfully obvious for the reader. That takes great writing abilities. And it takes a reader who knows something about the Bible. Now, I know that some of you have have read some of Tolkien's works, and if if you're only vaguely familiar with them, it's probably through The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. Tolkien wrote a lot of books and articles, but these are by far the most well-known. Now, if you are utterly depraved, you may have just watched the movies and not read the books, and for that I will pray for you, and I trust that you're going to go to Amazon tomorrow and order all of them and start reading Now, one of the major themes of the Lord of the Rings is the power and influence of the One Ring, the Dark Lord Sauron's ring of power, which corrupts anyone who tries to use it, no matter how good their intentions may be. And two of the main characters, Bilbo and Frodo, they fall prey to the power and influence of the One Ring, and they are completely consumed by that ring to the point that they are eventually unwilling to give it up and destroy it forever in the lava of Mount Doom in Mordor. Now, once they're overtaken, these two base their entire lives around this ring, and they really live under its control. They worship the ring and what they assume it is doing for them, and slowly but surely... As you read through this work, you see that their ambitions and their emotions begin to change until they get to a place where they assume that they cannot live without this ring. The thing that makes the ring so powerful is that it takes the most wanted desires of the individual, the things that they want more than anything else, and it magnifies them so significantly that those desires become the only thing that that person cares about. Now, some of those desires are good. Some of those are things like wanting to liberate slaves or, or preserve the people's land or visit justice on wrongdoers. These are all good objectives, but the ring makes them willing to do anything to achieve those objectives, anything at all. And so it turns a good thing into something that overrules their allegiance to 
principles and values that should guide them. The wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to the ring and what it stirs up in the heart. Now, hopefully, as Christian people, you instantly realize what Tolkien is presenting in the ring. It is an idol, and it has powerful control over the people who possess it. It has become, functionally, it has become a god for Frodo and Bilbo and anyone who comes into contact with it for that matter. It's why they're supposed to be destroying it in the first place. And while you and I certainly aren't part of this grand battle in, in Middle-earth with orcs and goblins and, and trolls, we are in a battle with the powerful tendencies of our own hearts. John Calvin once wrote that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols and that the mind begets an idol and the hand gives it birth. That's a profound picture, isn't it? Jeremiah reminds us that man's heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can trust it? Indeed, when we get really honest about ourselves and, and we, we consider all the ways we're prone to lust after lesser things in this world, things that are even good, things that God offers to us as gifts in the Lord Jesus Christ, we still see that our hearts have this ever-churning conveyor belt that is bringing about the latest and the greatest and the newest and the most improved idols for us to lust after and to embrace. We develop things in our own hearts that we assume we can't live without. We must have them, and we're eventually, we even get to a place where we're willing to break rules, we're willing to break covenant, we're willing to break our own once-held convictions, even if it means harming ourselves and others in order to make our idols happy. Idols are spiritual addictions, and they lead us to terrible evil, just like in the Lord of the Rings, but in our very own lives. This morning, we're beginning a new series called Idol. We're going to be looking at what idolatry is, what the effects of idolatry are, and we will consider specific types of idolatry, idolatry to which all of us are prone. Now, we certainly can't look exhaustively at all the Bible has to say about idolatry. There is much to be said from the Scriptures, but hopefully a general overview will be helpful for us over the next few weeks. So this morning, we're going to start with a passage that is fairly well known when it comes to idolatry. You're probably familiar with it. And really, what this passage does is gets to the heart of the foolishness of idolatry. We need to have a good grasp of what we mean when we're talking about idolatry and to see how deceptive it truly is for those who follow after it. I think we have a tendency as enlightened 21st century Westerners to read and think about idolatry and assume that we're better off because we're not these unenlightened mystics of the past. But God's Word surely paints for us a very different picture for us to consider. All of us, whether we want to be or not, on some level, are idolaters. And we are prone to idolatry lest we look faithfully to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the 1830s, when Alexis de Tocqueville re recorded his famous observations on America and his seminal work, Democracy in America, he noted this. He said, a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. And so what he meant was that Americans believe that 
Prosperity could quench their yearnings for happiness, but he was saying all of those kinds of yearnings, that was just, that was a mirage. Because, as de Tocqueville added, he said, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And he's right. The strange melancholy, a despair of the soul, manifests itself in many different ways, but always leads to an end of not finding what is sought. There's a search that all of us have. We have this search for ultimate meaning and hope, but when the things that we go after that they don't deliver that, our spirit is broken and this, this melancholy of the spirit, this despair sets in. And so de Tocqueville is making this, this observation that, that this comes when we take, we take in these incomplete joys of the world and we try to build our lives on them. And this is what idolatry is essentially, right? It's something from the world, something either that someone else has created or that we have created. It's been given to us by God in some form. It's something in this world that we look to and we begin to trust in and we begin to think it's going to fulfill our longings or or give meaning to our hearts and to our lives and give us purpose and joy and satisfaction and peace. And we're just going to live upon that. And so we have all these expectations that we, we place on it, and we think it's going to deliver us from something or to something. And then, in the end, what we find is that after we've tried to build our lives upon it, it's incomplete. It's still not delivering what we thought it would. And that's what, exactly what Isaiah is going to show us this morning, the utter foolishness of idolatry. So the first point this morning we find in verses 9 through 11, and that is that idolatry is empty and worthless. Look with me, Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Now, one commentator wrote that the central theological principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. Now, I think that maybe is a little bit overstated, but there is a significance to that statement. It is a major theme of the Scripture. And if we believe in, uh, as we say we do, that there is only one true and living God who loves us and who communes with us, and if we are lacking in communion in any way with Him, there has to be a reason. And what the Bible points us to and what we're going to see is that that reason that we often lack communion with God is because our hearts are being captivated by something else. And here Isaiah is showing us that that something else that we are captivated by is empty and worthless when compared against God. Notice here in verse 9 we see three things that he identifies. He identifies the idol maker, the idol, and the idolater. So Isaiah shows us very bluntly. He says first that the idol maker is nothing. All who fashion idols are nothing. 
That's pretty strong language, isn't it? And then he says, of the idol, he says, they do not profit. And then of the idolater, the one who who worships the idol, he says, they neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. And so from the jump, we see this very strong, forceful language that identifies a significant hatred that God has for idolatry and the seriousness of idolatry and how it leads to nothing. This is, this is not the sort of soft southern language that some people like. You know what I'm talking about. This is straight to the point. This doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't have any whipped cream on it. He goes straight to deal with the fact that our hearts desire idols and they are empty and they are worthless, they are meaningless, and to do so is a foolishness. Think of the self-interested pride that it takes to go after idols. The heart that says we can create a God of our own making that's more fulfilling, more satisfying, more desirable than the God who created us who sustains us, who gives us life, who gives us being. What could be more self-interested than that? But let's make a distinction. There certainly is a difference between the conscious and unconscious pursuit of idolatry. Now, all of us, as we've said, are prone to idolatry. And I hope for those of us who can identify idols in our lives, it's not because we were consciously going after them as a replacement for God, but they crept into our lives. And as we saw them, as we went after them, sometimes we didn't realize they were there until it was pointed out to us or we realized how much of attachment we had to them. But what Isaiah is going after here up front is those who are consciously going after idols. He's pointing out the extreme instances of those who are creating idols. They're fashioning them, something that they can utilize for their worship. And he says they are nothing, and what has been created is worthless. It's empty. Why? Because he goes on to identify that all that is produced, notice he said all that is produced is made by mere humans in verse 11. But notice the idolater is planning the spiritual. He's trying to fashion a God. He's casting an idol, but what has he achieved in trying to make the spiritual? He has only made something that is physical. So he's going for the spiritual, but he's only able to create the material. And what good is the material in terms of providing what the soul is longing for and needs? It is of no benefit. He tells us plainly, it's empty. It is profitable for nothing. Now, indeed, Isaiah points out that no matter how many craftsmen are involved, you can have a whole team of the greatest craftsmen that the world can assemble. They cannot break the restriction that they are created beings themselves, and all that they can create is material. They are humans, and humans are limited. We cannot create the spiritual. We cannot create that which is supernatural. And so he's saying, if only they would stand and see what they are doing. If only they would see that they need to stop and take notice of what's going on, then they would be afraid. They would be ashamed. They would be terrified. They would see what fools they have been, and their hearts would be filled with fear. They would be filled with shame. They would be embarrassed. Why? Because at the heart of idolatry 
is the embrace of thoughts and ideas about what a God is that are contrary to the one true God to whom all worship, glory, honor, and praise are due. God is jealous for his own glory, and he has every right to be. God says, I am the first and I am the last. And the Bible reminds us that there is none like him. In other words, God is wholly unique in every way. So to attribute to any other God that which only belongs to him, to give any other God that which only belongs to him, which is our worship, our devotion, our allegiance, that is to undermine his uniqueness and to assume that what we can create or to take something else that he has created and to turn it into an object of worship is greater than God. We make something else greater than the God who has created us. So what's really going on is that behind that supposed ingenuity and making images is an attempt to fashion God in our own image. We're trying to make a God that we would like based on our own preferences. John Calvin commented on this point. He said, thus their thoughts concerning him are excessively wicked and they cast aside and stain his glory by making it like earthly and fading things. Nothing is so inconsistent with the majesty of God as images and he who worships them endeavors to shut up God in them and to treat him according to his own fancy. Justly, therefore, does the prophet attack such corruptions and sharply censures the mad zeal of superstitious persons since nothing more detestable can be uttered or imagined. What a thought. Nothing more detestable can be thought or imagined that we would try to replace God with something of this creation. That's a fearful place to be, isn't it? And if we're to find ourselves there, we, we ought to recognize our own foolishness. When we identify idols in our hearts, we need to see the foolishness that lies behind them. Listen, they are there. We need to be honest about that. They exist in our lives. And all of them are empty and all of them are worthless. So we have this dual reality going on, this struggle that we have as Christians. We see how empty and foolish idols are. And as genuine Christians, we want to avoid them. We want to get rid of them at all costs. However, they are there and they will continue to be there as long as we live. So we will spend our lives crushing idols. And sometimes, oftentimes, we're creating them. We're, we're building them up and fashioning them and molding them. And we don't even recognize what we are doing and how we're doing it until it becomes this thing that we've lost control of and we've devoted ourselves to it in a way that we never saw coming at all. The reality is that most of our idols are things that in and of themselves are not bad things. And a lot of times they might actually be good and godly things. But when we turn good things into gods, they've been misplaced. We do it all the time. All the time we do this. And so we have this consistent battle of who or what is going to sit and occupy the throne that is in our hearts. We are always 
finding other things that want to battle to take the place of Christ in the hearts of his people? Is it Jesus that sits on the throne of your heart or is it a massive list of other things that you like, that you desire, that you want more of? We must be vigilant because idolatry is empty and foolish. They profit us nothing. I want us to get a sense of the utter foolishness of idols that leads to shame. And another well-known passage is Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. And if you want to flip there, we're going to le- read a large section if you want to read along. If not, just listen. But let's be honest, who doesn't love this passage? If you know this, I admit I've been, I have been known, I've been accused by others of from time to time making a sarcastic comment or two. And this here is the right and biblical use of sarcasm and mockery and biting criticism. And it just, it makes me smile. It does my heart good. I love, I love it. I absolutely love it. Because sarcasm and biting criticism and mockery are sometimes exactly what needs to be done. It's a good and right and biblical thing to do if it's rightly placed. And we get an example of that right here. This is the biblical way to mock fools. And so here's what the text says. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us. And let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And he says, we got two bowls. Let them choose which one they want. Cut it up, put it on the fire. Or put it, put it out for a fire, but don't set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. Give me the one that you don't want and I'll take it and I'll put it on the wood. Verse 24, and you call upon the name of your God... And I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. They're idiots. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no... Oh, I... Uh, And then he goes on and says, they took this bull, it was given to them, they prepared it, they called on Baal from morning till noon, all morning they're calling on him, and they're saying, oh Baal, answer us, do what we're asking, please, don't make us look like idiots. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, after they've done this all morning, nothing happens. At noon, Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing. In other words, he's, he's just daydreaming. Maybe he's, he's not paying attention to you because he's off thinking of something else. Either he's musing or 
He's relieving himself. He's, he had to take a bathroom break. He had a little too much kale. And he can't get out of the bathroom this morning. Or he's on a journey. Maybe he went on a trip. He, he doesn't know. He didn't know he needed to be around for this event this morning. So he went on a trip and didn't let you know. Or perhaps he's asleep. You're just not shouting loud enough. Wake him up. Verse 28, and they cried aloud. Look what they did. They cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances. They need a new custom. Until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offerings of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, I won't read on, but you know what happens next is not only does Elijah have God bring fire upon the wood, he has it all soaked in water first. And then the Lord sends fire and he proves that the Lord truly is God. Now, these prophets of Baal, 450 men, they were so ashamed, they were so thoroughly mocked with precision by Uh, Elijah for their foolishness in their pursuit of nothing, their pursuit of a nothing God. So in the end, they saw what they were doing and they cut themselves and cried out because they could think of nothing else to do. Their God was impotent and unable to provide them with what they desired. He was worthless and in his worthlessness, he too mocked them. Idolatry, brethren, is empty and worthless. And while this is a vivid example, this is what all idolatry looks like. This is the level of foolishness and the way that anyone who goes after an idol ought to be mocked. Well, look at our next point this morning. In verses 12 through 17, we see that idolatry appeals to the flesh and focuses on the temporary. Look at verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over that half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. (laughs) Oh, by the way, the rest of it he uses to make a god his idol and falls down before it and worships it. And he prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. Notice this description that Isaiah is giving us here. He, like Elijah, is mocking the idolater, right? 
We have the, the first, we, first we have this idol maker making or working himself up so hard that he's, he's creating this thing out of iron. So we have the iron worker first. It's metal work. So he gets his tools ready and he fashions this idol and he's hungry, but he doesn't eat. He's, he's growing weak, but he doesn't rest. He's thirsty, but he does not drink. What he's saying, he's so busy. He's working so hard to create this thing that he's going to worship that, that he doesn't take a break. He doesn't stop until he's done. He's so eager to have this. And then he goes on to the next idol maker in verse 13. It's a carpenter. He's measuring, he's marking, he's cutting, he's shaping, he's he's forming. And notice what all of this hard work amounts to. Look, the result is that all of this labor is to the point of utter exhaustion. And it's this thing that he's created to look like what? He says to look like a human being. The best image of a human one could imagine. And he puts it in his house for people to worship. He's shaping what he's making into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in the house. Isaiah is showing us the utter folly once again of working so hard because in the end, all of his toil, all of his hard work only brings about an idol that will sit motionless, it will sit powerless, completely impotent in every way in the house. It's just going to sit there in a room. It's just going to be set on the fireplace mantle and everyone's going to come in and when they see it, they're going to admire it and they're going to bow down before it and they're going to kiss it and they might put food or incense and flowers out in front of it. And then what happens when they wake up in the morning, the food and the flowers and the incense are all still there. They clear it out and they come back and put more there to feed their idol or to please their idol. But their idol is a block of wood. And this goes on over and over and over because a hunk of wood or a hunk of iron cannot eat food. It cannot smell the incense. It cannot admire the flowers. And yet they'll continue to do this the next day. Now, (coughs) let's be clear about idolatry. It's not that the idolater necessarily assumes that that piece of iron or that piece of wood is the God itself. They believe that these are objects in which uh, contain the God that they are worshiping. So there's a belief, and Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians. The belief is that the idol is what's behind or within that object. And so they're not worshiping the wood or the iron itself. They're worshiping what they believe to be contained within that wood or contained within that iron. But to the the observer, to the one who's just watching, it looks just like that is exactly what they're doing. And if you ever travel, if you go to places like India, there's temples everywhere with these statues, with these idols that have been created, and people are going in there and putting out food and flowers and and whatever else that they're doing. They take off their shoes and they go in and they bow down before them and they pray to them. They're not worshiping the object itself. They're worshiping what they believe is contained within that object. And yet, the results, as we saw with the prophets of Baal, are exactly the same. Just as useless and empty and impotent as the block of wood, so is what they assume the spirit is within that idol. And so this text is written in such a way as to leave us saying, wow, you know what? Idolatry is just dumb. And it is. You should think that because it is. 
And look, notice that there's no comparison with God here, but if you read this in its fuller literary context, you notice something. Back in chapter 40, the prophet talks about how God stretches out a line to mark off the breadth of the heavens. The Lord marked out all that would exist. He stretches out a line to mark that. But what do we see here in the text? Well, the idol maker stretches out a short little line to make an outline of the idol. So you've got 6 inches, 12 inches. He's, he's marking this out. So we have the Lord who's creating the universe and all that is in it. And here we have the idol. He's making this little thing. He's stretching out this string to get his measurement. Also, Isaiah points to God being glorious and displaying his glory for everyone to see. But the idol, they have no glory and anything that they do have is going to be confined to those who are able to go inside the house and look at it. The best man can do is create a metal or wood image of man, and man is the image of God, and so what we have here is a copy of a copy. (laughs) Think about that. Now, copy machines today are, are really good, so this illustration doesn't work if you don't have any experience with the 1990s and before. But back in the day, if you made a copy of something, it was okay. But if you tried to make a copy of that copy, you were living on a prayer that you could actually read that thing, right? And this is, this is what we're saying here. This is a copy of a copy of the real thing. This isn't God. This isn't even man who's created in God's image. This is an image created from the image of God. And so you have a copy of a copy. And, and, and so this guy goes out, he picks out the kind of tree that he's, he's going to use. And I can imagine he's taking his time. He's, he's using great care to figure out which tree it's going to be. Or he even says he'll go and plant a cedar tree. You know how long a cedar tree takes to grow? He's going to plant that thing and he's going to wait on it to grow big and strong. That takes years. And look at the madness it's not this spur-of-the-moment thing. It's, something, it's not something that just happens all of the sudden. They've persisted in their madness for years leading up to the shaping of this idol. Notice this mockery. Isaiah, listen, Isaiah and Elijah, these guys were made to be on Twitter. They would have been banned from Twitter faster than you can say fascism, but they would have been masters at it. Verse 15, he says, This is fuel for man, and with it he warms himself, he makes a fire, he bakes bread. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? That's what you're supposed to do. That's what it's there for. Oh, but wait, there's more. With the other side of that, he makes a god and he falls down before it and worships it. He burns part of it, and he worships part of it. He cooks with some of it, and the rest is the God that he worships and calls on for deliverance. He stands up this leftover piece of wood, and he asks it to save him. That is absurd. It's absurd to try and derive an ultimate experience from a less-than-ultimate resource. That is false worship. Now look, what is all of this? Here's the reality of what Isaiah is pointing to. This man creates an idol that looks like him, and then he worships his own work. What is this other than a fleshly appeal to look at oneself 
and to think highly of oneself and to worship oneself and all that we create ourselves. It's not something eternal. It's temporary. It's fleeting. And it's all about whom? It's all about me. It's all about what I look like. And it's all about what I created to look like me. Completely captivated by the works of the flesh. Completely enamored with who I am and what I can do. So you see, we have a tendency to look at this and say, wow, I'm really glad that I'm not like that guy. But you are. And I am too. You see, Isaiah is just bringing us into the idol factory and giving us an up-close and personal tour of what's going on. He's dwelling on each step of the process and it builds in its foolishness and its intensity only to slap us with the reality that any time we turn in on ourselves, in our flesh, we are being enamored with the temporary, the fleeting things of this life over and above the God who created us. Are we any better than the man who fashions an idol out of wood or iron? Self-obsession is the absolute mantra of our culture, isn't it? Billions upon billions, even trillions of dollars are spent on advertising that all that we need is to not be less, but to be more self-obsessed than we already are. And when we finally obsess enough about ourselves and we get everything that we're told we need, we'll finally get the happiness that our, our hearts are longing for. We'll finally get the elusive satisfaction that we've, we can't find. But the problem is the best of whatever it is that we want keeps getting better. So the best today isn't the best tomorrow, and we never stop. We never get off the treadmill, and the whole time we're running, we're staring directly into the mirror and obsessing over what we see. And yet we have Jesus telling us, hey, listen, if you want meaning, if you want purpose in your life, if you want joy, if you want peace, if you want satisfaction, don't be self-obsessed. You need to die to yourself so that you might actually truly live. All along, you thought worshiping yourself and what you could do in this life was the answer to all of it, but that is a big lie. You will never fill your emptiness apart from me and everything else that you try to put in place of me, it's all going to sit there and stare back at you and do nothing. You ever notice on shows like American Idol, it's a fitting title, isn't it? That when the person is asked, what's the dream, right? Uh, what do you want to do? What do they say a lot of times? They might have different ways of saying it, but essentially it comes out like this. I want to be rich and famous. That's the dream. Well, first of all, being rich and famous is not a career. It is not a skill. It is an outcome that is a result of you doing something that leads to that. But what's at the heart of that? What's at the heart of wanting to be rich and famous? Being noticed, being liked by others, being wanted, being adored by other people, having people wish that they were me and that they could have what I have. And so what has been the result for a lot of rich and famous people? Drug addiction, suicide, depression, being driven to absolute madness. Do you know why people in Hollywood are pretty much absolutely insane? 
because they're so incredibly obsessed with their idol, themselves. Self-obsession is a religious pursuit, and they have the resources to take it to the extreme, much like Solomon did in Ecclesiastes. Just listen to these people talk, and you get the extreme version of what Isaiah is writing about here. But then we walk right over to the mirror and see what's staring back at us and remind ourselves that the heart of the person that we're looking at is just as prone and just as willing to do the very same thing because in our flesh we want it all. Dying to ourselves so that we might truly know what it means to live is not a natural thing. It is a supernatural work, and we cannot do it apart from Christ. We cannot do it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it apart from the the work of the one true and living God who only can crush idols and bring about a recognition of who He is and how He is far greater than anything that we could ever think to imagine that we might fashion with our own hands. Well, lastly, we see this morning in verses 18 through 20 that idolatry destroys our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. Look at verse 18. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before this block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The mockery continues, and Isaiah is showing us the exact opposite of what Uh, of what we pray. I pray often, I pray this many times in your hearing, that the Lord would do what he says he will do in his word, namely to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. That prayer is a direct contradiction of what happens with the idolater. But what does Isaiah show us here? That idolatry does exactly the opposite of what we want. It destroys the faculties. It destroys our ability to see and to hear, and to understand. Far from being helpful in any kind of worship, idolatry hinders our ability to truly commune with God because we're busy trying to appease our idol. We go out of our way to appease our idol, and the result is that we become blind, deaf, and dumb. Now, this is a formula that we see a lot as we consider idolatry, and we're going to look at that a lot next week as we go to Isaiah chapter 9, but or excuse me, Isaiah 6. So the point, though, that we should see here is that in the end, to do all of this that we've looked at this morning in service to ourselves is to be driven to utter insanity, to complete madness, and yet we don't even recognize it when it's happening. Have you ever, have you ever seen that show, Hoarders? It's disturbing, right? I was just watching it recently when I was cooking dinner, Pro tip, don't watch that show when you're cooking dinner. But there was this lady, and she had, she had piles of trash all around her house, and she couldn't get around. There was so much. She couldn't even get to the bathroom because of all of this stuff, so she just used adult diapers. And, and then her house was filled with mice, and, and she, she thought they were her friends, and so she fed the mice in her house. Now, this is obviously very sad. This woman 
obviously has something going on in her heart and in her mind, and it's a sad thing, and she certainly needs help. But the thing was, when everyone showed up to help her, the response that she gave left everyone in shock. She did not see a problem with any of it. She didn't think anything was wrong. She didn't think anything was a big deal or that anyone should be worried about her. And that's what idolatry does. It's the same kind of response. You know, for her, we can point and say there's something going on in her mental faculties that are not right. And for the idolater, our eyes don't work, our ears don't work, our hearts can't understand. And so in the same way, we are made to look at what is real and to say it's not a problem. There's no problem here. Others may see it, it may be absolutely obvious to them, but it's not obvious to the person themselves. They're so shut off from reality, they don't even realize it. Their spiritual senses are dulled, their eyes are plastered over so they can't even recognize the difference between a created God and the one true and living God. Look, if you idolize yourself or money or success or your career or your hobbies or another person, your spouse, your children, your family, your a celebrity, whatever it is, you name it, all of these things can become idols to us and you may not see it at all, but others around you, they can see it. Do you think you don't have any idols in your life? I triple dog dare you today to talk to someone close to you and ask them if you have any idols in your life. Don't argue with them. Don't justify it. Just listen. And the more you want to justify it, the more you feel yourself wanting to defend yourself, they're probably right on that idol. It's probably an idol because they're going after your God and you want them to stop. And so the question is, what will you do about it? The conclusion that... Isaiah draws is that idol worshipers feed on ashes. Animals graze on lush grass. People eat bread and meat, but the idolater feeds on dry, dusty, bitter ashes that are the result of him burning the other half that he didn't use for his God. The idol God is no different than the ashes that the idolater eats. Only a fool would eat ashes. Only a person who had a deluded heart would think that ashes were good for a meal. And the depth of human depravity that brings about idolatry makes it impossible for a person to be delivered from the grips of his own blindness. In fact, the natural man will dig his heels in more and more as you point out his idols to him. And only, only in Jesus Christ can we find freedom from our idols that are so entrenched in our hearts that we so desperately long for. Only in Jesus Christ can we be freed from the power and influence of enslaving idols that we've created and worshipped. And so this morning, for all of us, for believers and non-believers alike, we must recognize that our freedom from idols can only be found in knowing, trusting, loving, depending upon, resting in, and standing on the Lord Jesus Christ alone. If you are not in Christ, you have idols in your life. You will worship something. Everyone worships something. Many people worship many things. And so what will that be? Because the thing that you're worshiping, if it is not the Lord Jesus Christ, it is empty, it is worthless, it will not provide what it promises. And the reality is that you already know that. 
you already know that what you're longing for is not found. The satisfaction that you're hoping for is not there. It is only in Christ that we can truly find rest. And as we've said already in the words of Jesus, what seems counterintuitive is that he calls us not to live for ourselves, but to die to ourselves, that we might live upon him. And so that's the call to all of us this morning. How are we living upon Christ that we may be free from idols in our hearts? Are you living upon Christ, consciously communing with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, a recognition of the truth and the faithfulness and the worthiness of his word for his people? Let's live upon Christ together as God's church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the challenge that comes to us by your word, that as we think about our own hearts, as we think about the things that we ourselves are prone to, the ways that we are tempted to look away from you, to deviate from the truth, to stand upon something other than the righteousness of Christ, as we are made to think about that this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to any of us the idols that exist in our hearts. Lord, we don't, we don't want to deny that you have given us many glorious and wonderful gifts to enjoy and to delight in, to appreciate. We want to enjoy those good things. And yet, we don't want to turn good things into our gods. And so, Lord, anything that we have a tendency to turn into our God May it be that we are aware, that we are alert, and that we not turn to lesser things in our worship and devotion. May you be on the throne of our hearts. May we put an end to this factory of idols in our hearts, that we might see you as the all-sufficient, all-satisfying, glorious God that you are. And we pray you would do this, that in our lives, in our church, in our homes, you would be glorified. And we pray you would do all of this for your name's sake. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.